What a difference 24 hours makes, huh? You know, I found it interesting this morning. After the storm last night, and Tom talked about storms last week, how afterwards, oftentimes, beautiful things happen. And sometimes, cool, cloudy weather is a beautiful thing. Isn't it? My name is Tim Harrima. I'm part of the teaching team here, and we're wrapping up our uh, series on Acts. We've been in this book this, for a long time, and we're drawn to a close. Next week, Kevin is going to wrap it up all together, and we're going to do some different interesting things, and we're actually going to have a simulcast between the sanctuary and the auditorium next week, and there may be some surprise speakers along the way. So, yeah, we're getting close. I'd like to open today with a question. Who are you? Or maybe more importantly, who were you created to be? I'd like you to be thinking about that as we go through um, today. As I mentioned, we're, we're finishing up our series on Acts. And when Tom left off last week, Paul and his 270-some shipmates had been shipwrecked and had made it to shore. And Tom spoke last week a lot about knowing and trusting that the God of the Lord of the storm, Jesus Christ, has us in his arms. And it's really interesting because when I heard Tom's message last week, Sunday, I took away something completely different than what I took away when I listened to it again on Friday. And I was, I was processing this all week, and, and I couldn't help but be convicted about a few things. And one of, some of the things that I was convicted about is, do I really truly believe and trust that the Lord of the storm is in my boat? And do I live my life in a way that shows or bears witnesses, witness to that. And so that's kind of the, the theme that I went through as I prepared this week. And we'll, we'll talk more about that a little bit. Um, our reading this week is the last chapter of Acts, which is Acts 28. If you have a uh, blue Bible from the back, it starts on page 1110. And so I invite you to please hear the, Lord, the word of God. Uh, once safely on shore, we found, that the island, we found out that the island was called Malta. Interesting, uh, Malta is uh, from a, a Phoenician word, Melita, which means place of refuge. Very appropriate here. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice, the goddess justice, has not allowed him to, leave, to live. Isn't it interesting that Paul having spent a couple of weeks in a ravaging storm at sea, experiencing a shipwreck, swimming to shore, gets up 
and starts gathering wood for the fire. And in doing so, a snake bites his hand and hangs from his hand. I mean, can you, can you imagine this? I mean, I'd be like, Lord, what next? Right? But Paul just kind of simply brushes it off like it's no big deal. Paul shook the snake off, his, off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual to happen, unusual happened to him, they changed their mind and said he was a god. So Paul was either a murderer or a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hand on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. And they honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. They don't, it doesn't say anything in this little section of this chapter about Paul preaching while he was on Malta. But is there any doubt that he was influencing these islanders in a positive way? He healed the chief official's father. And all these other people that were suffering illness came to him. And probably Luke. Luke, the author of Acts, was uh, there with him. Luke was a doctor. And probably helped provide some medical attention to these people. But they, they tended and they served these people. And by the way they acted, they were impacting these people. And obviously, they had a good impact because they kind of came together, gave them supplies. Their ship, their ship was gone. All their stuff was gone. And sent them on their way. Interesting. After three months, months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Castor and Pollux are the Gemini twins. They are the sons of Zeus, and they are the gods that protect sailors. So why was this in here? I, I don't know for sure, but it's kind of interesting that here we have the mythological or superstitious protection of the ship, but Paul had God. Paul had Jesus protect him. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. So Malta to Syracuse, you see it up on the map right there, and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we sailed to Petuoli, which isn't really shown on the map right there, but it's kind of in that little bay or cove just south of uh, Neapolis on that map. So that's where they landed in Italy uh, after they had been in Malta and, and momentarily were in Sicily. And there we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. So here they just had landed in, well, they call this Rome, but they're not really to Rome yet. They're about 75 miles south of Rome. And somehow Paul's able to spend a week with some of his Christian brethren in the region. 
So again, whether he attained some kind of status or trust with the centurion who was guarding him, or the centurion had business to tend to, they stayed there for a week. And remember what Tom told us last week, if Paul would take off and he would be gone, it would be the centurion's life that would be taken in place of the prisoner. So this was a big deal. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. So the three taverns is about 43 miles south of Rome. And when they were traveling from the port to Rome, they were traveling on foot. And so there was a custom in Rome during that time that when emperors or kings or other dignitaries would arrive on the coast, a battalion or group of people would come down to wherever they were, join them, meet with them, and travel with them to Rome as kind of a, an entourage or a celebration team. And so Paul had not been to Rome before, but the Christians in Rome, Rome knew of him, and they considered him to be a dignitary. And so they came down and, and joined him and made the final 43-mile trek back to Rome with him, encouraging him and uh, being a part of his group. And so we, uh, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Paul was able to have a private home that we find out later in verse 30 he actually paid rent for. But he was still guarded by a, by a soldier. So Paul was still probably in chains even though he was essentially under house arrest. That's how his time in Rome began. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. And when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. Notice that he called these Jewish leaders brothers. This is a different brother than what he's talking to about his brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul was still a Jew. Paul was in the bloodline of the Jews and considered himself still to be a Jew. So these were brothers of his in a little different capacity, but Paul wasn't really distinguishing about it, and we'll, we'll talk about that why in just a moment. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to, to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. And for this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you, because it is the hope of Israel, it is for the hope of Israel that I am bound with his chain. Paul's tradition, or Paul's MO, when he arrived at a place, was to first talk to the Jewish people. We saw it all through Acts. He would meet with them, he would talk with them, he would try to preach to them, but he'd always start there. And it says, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Anybody know what the hope of Israel is that he's talking about here? The hope of Israel is the Messiah. This is all of all the Jewish people. This was their hope. The Messiah was going to come. Paul knew the Messiah had come. And it was because of this that he was in chains. 
So again, this is why Paul still considers himself to be Jew, a Jew. It's just that he realizes that the hope of Israel has already been. They replied to him, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there have, has reported anything bad about you. Isn't that interesting? When he was in Jerusalem, they had people lying in wait to kill the guy. Now that he has appealed to Caesar, gone off to Rome, all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, not a word. No, people who have come from Jerusalem to Rome haven't said a thing. It's almost like they were, he's out of their hair. We're done with them. Or maybe it was that they really knew they didn't have much of a case. But regardless, not a word. The Jewish leaders went on to say, but we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. This sect is us. Okay, a sect is considered a breakaway of a group of people from a larger group. There was a time, and perhaps some still consider Protestants to be a sect from Catholicism. But they, this was not a compliment. But they, they'd heard about it. They knew about it. And they wanted to learn more. So they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to show them all the times in our Old Testament where Jesus was mentioned and tried to convince them that Jesus was the manifestation of these prophecies and scripture writings from the beginning of time. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For the people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and in turn, I would heal them. This little prophecy from Isaiah was quoted by Jesus in all four of the Gospels. And he used it to explain why he spoke in parables. He actually used it when he was talking about the parable of the sower. But this is kind of the heart of why some people get it and some people don't. Paul, witnessing for Jesus through Jesus' words through Isaiah. And he concludes by saying, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So, 
Acts ends somewhat abruptly after Paul has provided us with an incredible example of advancing and participating in the Great Commission, which is set out earlier in Acts 1.8, which says that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we will be a witness for Jesus to the ends of the earth. And brothers and sisters, I'm, hearing, I'm telling you here today that those parting words of Jesus right before he sent it into heaven is for all of us. This is what Acts is all about. This is about our call as believers in Christ and the receive, receivers of his grace to be a witness for him everywhere. So, how do we live this out? I'm not a big fan of audience participation because whenever I get asked to participate, I don't really want to. But I'm going to ask a question here, and I'm hoping somebody will participate in this. What is it about Paul, in your opinion, that makes his ministry so effective? Or think of somebody that has an impact on your faith, has had an impact on your faith at this point. What about them? made them effective. Anybody? Their passion. Their passion. Very good. Didn't care what other people thought of them. Confidence. Faithfulness and tenacity. Love that word. It was personal. Knowledge. He knew scripture. He knew Jesus' words. He knew the Old Testament by heart. He was a Pharisee. Man, he knew this stuff from the time he was yay high. Oh, when do you first? He had a personal experience with Jesus. What he received from God was worth more than anything else he ran into. Great, thank you. I'm going to pull this all together and, and, and talk about what I think this is all saying here about Paul and about anybody who is impactful in their ministry. And that is they are, he was and they are authentic. They're the real deal. So thank you. Next, I, I pulled up the definition of authentic, which is not false or copied, genuine real. They even went in a little bit more uh, explanation. In theory, a person who's being authentic has discovered his or who, her true self and openly displays it to the world. I found another quote that I thought was really good. It was from Breen Brown. Authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're, we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. And I would go on to add to this, as Christians, embracing who we were created to be. Who are you? 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. See, it was through God's grace that Paul received the blessings of forgiveness. He received the Holy Spirit, which allowed him to discover and know who he was. And he had the faith and the knowledge and the tenacity to live that out every day. And as he progressed, he continually transformed and changed. Paul knew why he was created. He may be the most self-aware man in human history, with possibly the exception of Jesus. But he knew who he was. You know, one of the biggest objections to the teachings of Christ from non-believers is the hypocrisy of Christians. We're phony. In fact, many people believe that non-believers are more authentic than believers. What's that all about? Well, the reality of it is we're flawed human beings. And we are not going to be able to attain and exemplify at all times the standards set by Jesus. But we don't claim to be perfect. Only forgiven. And thanks to God's grace, we are all growing and becoming better people every day, hopefully. Our failures actually serve to make the need for Jesus all that more clear. I found this great quote from Ray Baldwin. Ray, Ray Baldwin is the director of the Monodrake Bible Conference, and he said, The gospel not only hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but on the church's ability to authentically, sincerely, and genuinely share that hope through broken and messed up people. Amen to that. See, we don't have to be perfect to witness for Jesus, folks. In fact, by not being perfect, we can not only use our voice to testify, we can use our lives to testify. When people see how our imperfections are changed and improved, it's the best testimony there is. When I've talked with people about what has had the biggest impact on them in their faith walk, it's a conversation I love to have. You know, what, why? What, what brought you to where you are? What's, what led you on the path that you're going? One of the most consistent themes that I hear from people is them seeing the transformation in people and seeing the grace of God at work. Because folks, we're all flawed, troubled, problemed people. And Jesus provides healing and change from all this stuff. When people see others overcome addiction, when they see relationships restored, 
when they see changes in attitudes and behavior, when they experience or witness in others the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, forbearance, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, it has impact. It affects them. They want a piece of that. And because we're all messed up, we have the opportunity to show this to them. And we can be a witness for Christ in that way. I have been convicted of this as I prepared this week. Because I see Paul, and this dude never wasted any time. He was always ministering. He was always witnessing. Whether he was making a tent, whether he was on a a ship in a storm, whether he was in jail, chained and singing hymns, whether he was gathering wood for a fire, he was witnessing for Jesus to the ends of the earth on all the time. And he converted centurions and jailers and soldiers and Jewish leaders and enemies. He brought Jesus into these people's lives. Not because he knew scripture. That was a big part of it. But because he lived scripture. When Paul was in prison in Rome, in his house prison in Rome, he wrote several letters. He wrote the letter to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to, I think, the Colossians. He wasn't taking time off. He wasn't licking his wounds. He was working. He was witnessing. And it was in Ephesians that he wrote, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Chained in jail and still teaching us today. If you want to go on and read the rest of Ephesians, it's got a lot of good advice on how we're supposed to live our lives. How husbands are supposed to honor their wives. How wives are to honor their husbands. How children are to honor their parents. It's a great, great book. As they all are. But you you talk about the impact that we can have on people, good or bad. And I think about where I fall short and, and all this. I'll tell you a little story. There was a, two cars were driving down Main Street, heading toward Washington. And in the first car, it was an older, older model pickup, it was an old man, he was putting along maybe 20 miles an hour. And the car behind him was a smaller car driven by a young lady, and she was tailgating him. As they got to Washington Street, the light turned yellow. And the gentleman in the pickup could have hit the accelerator like I would have, and sped right through, but he did what he was supposed to do, and he yielded, and he stopped, and the light turned red. And the car behind him was honking, and the, gal in, and the car was yelling and carrying on, and, and uh, all of a sudden, she looked to her left, and there was a police officer standing right outside of her window. 
with a very serious look on his face. He said, young lady, you need to come with me. So after a few hours at the police station and several discussions and interviews, the police officer finally came back to this young lady and said, I apologize for everything. I'll let you go. He said, but you have to understand something. When I pulled up behind your car and I saw the bumper sticker that said, I heart Jesus, and I saw the other bumper sticker that said, protect life, and I saw the little silver fish symbol on your bumper, and I heard this vile language and saw a person hitting the steering wheel and giving the person in front of them the one-finger salute, I had no choice but to assume the car was stolen. When I, when I teach, I usually try to get here fairly early, and I usually have an opportunity to get together with Kevin, and we pray for each other, and we, we talk about what we're doing and what's What's leading us? We both kind of had similar experiences this week where we both kind of changed things up at the last minute, what we we're going to talk about. But when we got done and we were leaving the room, Kevin said to me, he said, your father's smiling down at you. And I said, well, no, I said, thanks, of course. But, but my immediate thought was, is he always? Because I know. I put myself out here by being a teacher, as all the teachers do, and we've kind of accepted a little bit different level of accountability. But that doesn't mean we always do the right thing. And I, I, fortunately, God has convicted me of behaviors that I participate in, where, whether I'm at work or whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the golf course or whether I'm driving down the road. And I'm challenged, and I hope you are too. We are always witnesses for Jesus. And if people know that you believe in Jesus, they're watching you. They're watching you all the time. And they're looking to see whether you're legit. And if we are going to participate in the Great Commission, if we are going to listen to Jesus' final words while he was on this earth the first time, then we are witnesses. And everything we do is going to have an impact. But here's the, here's the good part. We don't have to know every verse in the Bible to be a witness. We can be a witness by our lives. So I'm going to share with you, some, as I was going through this week of self confliction, I want to share with you some questions that I was asking myself and have been asking myself. And I, I challenge you to maybe think about these questions as well. Have I truly embraced who I've been created to be? Or, better yet, do I really know who I was created to be? Or am I listening without hearing or hearing without listening? Am I looking without perceiving? Do my actions, words, and thoughts consistently and clearly reflect Jesus? Does everybody I know, in whatever relationship I, what I have with them, see Jesus in me all the time? I can tell you an answer to that right now is no. 
What is preventing me from experiencing peace and contentment? Why do I get anxious? Why am I not satisfied with where I am or what I've got? Why do all my problems make me so crazy? I've told you before my troubles with driving and my patience when I drive. It's a family thing, but I own it. My wife and daughter and I went to Des Moines a little over a month ago on a Sunday afternoon after I'd been here. And we were going to Costco. And I have a love-hate relationship with Costco. I love all the stuff that Costco has, but I absolutely hate going there and getting it. I especially hate that parking lot. Even getting into the parking lot from that road, forget about it. So we're pulling into Costco, and I've made it all the way to Des Moines. I haven't gotten angry or upset at any other driver on the road. I'm doing great. We're pulling into Costco, and I pull in, and I'm taking a left, and I'm going to park in that far east line of cars, uh, parking spaces, and I'm pulling it, and there's a spot right in front of me. So I'm driving right for it, and right before I get there, a car goes right in front of me. And I'm telling you right now, brothers and sisters, I did not witness to Jesus very well at that particular moment. I said some things I regret, and I was, you know, I was, it felt good to get it out of my system, but I was embarrassed about it for a long time afterwards. I wasn't witnessing to my daughter or my wife. I don't know if the person who pulled in front of me heard me, but I wasn't witnessing that person either, and I certainly wasn't witnessing to anybody else that would have been in the parking lot that saw me or heard me. Fortunately, I don't have a high art Jesus bumper sticker on my back of my truck, but still. So this series on Acts, has it been kind of an interesting history lesson for you? Or has it had an impact on you? Is it going to change who you are or how you act? Is it going to change me? So I'm going to reference again, I'm going to call the worship team to come back up here because I'm getting ready to wrap up. But I'm going to reference again Ray Baldwin as he identified three characteristics of biblical authenticity found in Paul, which I thought were great. This is how we can be authentic, like Paul. Number one, we must be gospel-centered, not me-centered. Stop acting like you have it all together, folks. Because you don't. It's okay. Let people see your lives change. Let people see your behavior improve. Let them see your lives transformed. Because if you're perfect, there's only one direction to go. You're not perfect. Own it, but change it. Number two, our lives should be about humility, not pride. Paul was always talking about how he wasn't worthy, how he came to meet with people with trepidation and fear. He, he was not a prideful man. But as we are transformed... People should be drawn to Jesus, not 
us. Hey, I'm not up here to gain fans for Tim. I'm up here to win people for Jesus. And as soon as it becomes about me, I know I can't be doing this anymore. And third and finally, our lives must be sincere. How do you expect people to trust Jesus if they don't trust the messenger, if they don't trust you, if they don't see what Jesus can do? So who are you? Who were you created to be? And what are you going to do about it?